to thank everybody. Um, this specific share is dedicated to the memory of Sri Mordechai Ben Abraham. Okay, today's discussion. Now, I don't often give an excuse before I give a presentation, but as a lot of you know, I just have a child. Um, Rivka gave birth to a child last Tuesday. Please God, the bris will be on tomorrow morning. Um, so in terms of scatterbrain or whatever you want to call it, I've got it in like heavy doses. But, but it's the idea I want to discuss with you today. It's both fundamental in terms of understanding and our appreciation of Hanukkah, but also in terms of us being human beings in the world. And the way I titled it, and it's one of those talks that I, I live it, so it's just, it comes to mind, and the ideas I think are very, um, you'll interact with them a lot. So when it comes to the title of this talk, I said, what is so attractive? Meaning we talk about Hanukkah, and there's different approaches we can take to Hanukkah. We can talk about the Jews and the evil Greeks. There's a truth to that. They were persecuting us. But also we have to be specific about what we mean by Greeks. There's a big history going on there. When people think of Greece, there's a lot of different things that come to mind. There's the ancient Greeks, which are the classical era, where people think of the, the, the pantheon of the gods. We all know Zeus, we all know Poseidon, we all know Aphrodite, all these sort of names we know from popular culture. That's what we mean by the Greeks, but we also mean something else by the Greeks. We mean philosophy, we mean science, rudimentary science, but we mean science, we mean medicine, mathematics, botany, Really, everything that we sit on today, in some way, shape, or form, goes back to the Greeks. And we're going to touch in on that, because what's so important about the story of Hanukkah is that when we talk about the Greeks, and what comes to mind is when my, um, my children listen to uh, a Jewish tape, right? They generally speaking listen to Inadvaiti, but they listen to a Jewish tape on Hanukkah. And the way it describes the Greeks is like, the absolute antithesis of anything you'd ever want anything to do with. Like the antithesis of Judaism in the absolute extreme. The Greeks, or the way it puts it in this childish book, the word we use for Greeks is Yovon. He calls them the Yovonisha books that people read. Like the Yovonisha books. That's what the Jewish people didn't want to do. And they stood against the Yovonisha way of life. Now there is a truth to that, but there is a gross simplicity to that as well, which comes with a danger. If we characterize everything that's Greek on the time of Hanukkah as bad, we're doing something very strange. Because we're living in a Greek world. We're benefiting from a Greek world. As I said, not only is it perhaps a lie, because we're experiencing it, living it, and benefiting from it, but there's also something dangerous from an educational standpoint. When you bring people up to appreciate other worldviews and other cultures, and everything that's not your worldview is simply cast as bad, and there is a tendency when it comes to Hanukkah to do that. Yes, the Greeks did bad things to us. They persecuted us. They issued gazeras against us. Specifically, the Syrian Greeks, as the um, just a historical, I'm sure you'll have a beautiful history class on the idea of Hanukkah, but in essence, you've heard of Alexander. Alexander the Great. Which, by the way, it's quite interesting. You know, throughout history, not many people got the title great. Does anybody know any women who got the title great? Catherine, Catherine the Great. Excellent, exactly. Um, but generally, it meant you killed a lot of people some way, shape, or form. But more precisely, it meant that you, you, you did a shift in history, meaning you, made, you were a turning point in history. But anyway, Alexander died and his kingdom got split up. And the ones that matter here, the Ptolemies, which are the ones in Egypt, and the Seleucians, which are the ones in um, Syria. And they're the ones that basically fought over Israel because it was kind of in the middle. And they did persecute us and they did try to not convert is the wrong way of putting it. There was a Hellenistic influence on the Jewish people. But it's important to appreciate that it was attractive for a good reason. It wasn't like what had come before the Canaanites, the Assyrians and their gods of blood and worshipping a tree and a beaver. Yes, there was something more ethereal about the Greeks. There was something more beautiful about the Greeks. We speak about Hanukkah being the time when they attacked our spirit and Purim when they attacked our body, right? And there's a truth to that. But when they attacked our spirit, it wasn't just with bad stuff. There was something true and beautiful about the Greek way of looking at the world. And we're gonna ground this in Jewish sources because we live in a world which we appreciate wisdom. We don't think the entirety of human wisdom is nested in the Jewish people. 
we believe wisdom is spread out amongst the world. Yes, we are the ones with Tyra. Yes, we are the ones with purpose. But in terms of wisdom, that can be found throughout the world. And what I meant by it being a very dangerous educational message to give is that if you bring up your children, telling them that the whole world outside your little enclave is bad, the minute they get older and they experience the world outside your little enclave, they'll either think you are silly or you're a liar. Neither of them are particularly good. What do I mean by an appreciation of a Greek way of looking at the world? The standardization of medicine. That was, that was the Greeks. And I said, this is a long period we're dealing with now, but architecture, things that Rivka was in a hospital, that is built off Greek knowledge. The medicine that we experienced, the idea of science itself, that stems from the Greeks. That culture did a massive shift, but that shift is important. And we can gain and benefit from appreciating the value they give us, but at the same time, if you can appreciate the good, you can also point out the bad. You can also point out the dangers. If you put a blanket, way one of my teachers put it, stereotypes are a barrier to meaning. Stereotypes can be useful, but they lack nuance. Sometimes they're needed. My child, they, they, need, they need simplicity. When I teach them at the, the story in the parasha, I mean, Aesop is like a wicked man. They'll say, well, Aesop is a wicked man. Yes, but that's not how the Torah describes it. There's a nuance there. There's a complexity to Aesop that when we teach our children, we teach them through the lens of Medrash and a simplistic message is needed at a growing stage. But when you get older, you have to start appreciating nuance and gray. When we look at the Greeks, we can point to the good, but that also allows us to appreciate the bad or where precisely it was a turning point for the Jewish people where they had to say no. So that's the, let's call it the opening, the need to avoid simplistic overviews of stages in history. On the one side, because of an education, an, educa an, educated to, an education of our children has to be at the forefront of our minds as well as our own. And if we give simplistic perspectives, we do nobody any favors. But also it's just not true. If there's something performatively contradictory about it, for example, um, if you know politics, you know, like a, a Marxist or, or a communist in today's day and age, railing against capitalism, which they do, fair enough. But there's something bizarre about doing it on Twitter. Nah. Now, they would say, I have to, but there's something a bit ironic about that. You're experiencing the fruits of capitalism while trying to drum it down. That's a bit weird. You see this often in different ideologies that take hold of people, but they're resting on foundations that they don't really take, for example, um, about 10 years ago, there was a big new atheist movement that sort of took hold of the West. There was some people were pointing out there was something a bit bizarre about it because a lot of the ideas and assumptions that they had, they weren't going back to the ancient pagan world and wiping away Christianity and starting fresh. No, they were sitting on the foundations of Christianity. They were sitting on ethical and moral principles that aren't obvious, that are given to you by a religious tradition. Now, there were some of them that said like, no, we can, we can literally get rid of that. But that wasn't the general trend. People wanted to keep the foundation, but sort of ignore where it came from. I'm not saying you can never do this, but there's something a bit bizarre about it. And we don't want to fall into the same trap. We want to be able to see what the Greek world gave us, appreciate it, involve ourselves in science, involve ourselves in nature and beauty and culture, but at the same time, be able to pinpoint where the Jewish message differs. And as a grounding for this, in Chazal, and this is an idea that will be mentioned often in the Yon Ear, the idea that the Greeks weren't a, it was a sort of a meta-historical story that is being played out here. Yovan is one of the four kingdoms that the Jewish people interact with over our history. It, the Chazal draw it back to the very opening of Horatius, where the, it talks about that um, God created the world, there was chaos and formless matter, and, there was darkness on the face of the deep. Each one of those stages, they pinpoint as being a different kingdom. And this is quite important because if you have a symbolic idea impressed at the very earliest stages of the Torah, it means it's fundamental. It means it plays itself out throughout the Torah and potentially throughout your life. But even in the prophecies where they talk about different animals and different kingdoms emerging, the leopard, for example, 
the connection to Yavon, to the Greeks. There's a, you've heard of, what's, what, what's the, you call them being bold like a leopard? There's a boldness that the Greeks came with. But even earlier than that, we have another image of the Greek. If we go all the way back to Noach, what was Noach's three sons? Three sons was the first prophecy that's called it. When Noach gave the blessings to his three sons, where he said, Yaf Elohim Yafes, may God open the or beautify Yafes. But may he dwell in the tents of shame. And Chom be a servant to order. Now that's very bizarre. I mean, but we're thinking, try, let's abstract here. The beauty of Yafes is a beauty, it is a value, but where should it dwell? It should be in the context, in the surrounding of shame. And who is shame? The father of the Jewish people. Shame is that which means when you give something a name, you point to its essence. When you give something a name, you, you're pointing to something that which transcends the thing you're pointing to. You're trying to point to some, a characteristic of the thing and identifying it with its name. Beauty is the beautiful. And chom is heat. Chom is passion. So if you look at the three aspects of, let's call it, world culture or human psyche, you have the passion, you have the beautiful, and you have the transcendent or the intellectual, the spiritual. These three stages at the very earliest stage in Genesis, we have it being played out and the correct mapping, the correct hierarchy of these three structures, three, these three elements. You have the heat of chom. Is passion needed? Yes. Heat is needed, but it should be the servant to everything. It should be that which powers everything, but it shouldn't be your driving force. It shouldn't be orientating you. It should be that which stands at the bottom, which allows things to manifest. Yefes is the beautiful, and the beautiful is important, but it can never be the ends. The beautiful must rest in the tent of shame. This is the earliest description we have of Yavon. And Yovan is the one, the Greeks are the one, that uh, they are the beautiful. They're the ones who took the, and if we look at this throughout history, you have the, you really do have this three-stage structure being played out. The earliest pagans of old, what did they worship? Think Bronze Age, think Egyptian. You worship the Nile. You worship sun. In other cultures, you would worship a bear. You are part of the world, the way, that, the way the sociologists call it. We live in an embedded world. The difference between a man and God wasn't a difference in kind. It was a, it, it was a difference in, in, in power. There was no transcendence the way we understand it today. There's this world and a world I'm trying to reach. They call it the continuous cosmos because you were embedded in the cosmos to gain wisdom was to gain power. If any of you, when you were children, you would hear about Pharaoh. What did, what, what's, what did we know about Pharaoh? What did Pharaoh consider himself? God. It's a bit stupid. Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, I was like, uh, yeah, but he's like walking around, huh? <laughs> and that strikes us as weird. But it wasn't weird. Who was the most powerful? Pharaoh was the most powerful. So Pharaoh was a god. When they said God, they didn't mean Hashem, just Pharaoh. No, they meant something fundamentally different. Man lived in fear of the gods. Man was scared of the world was this chaotic mess. And you tried your best to placate the gods. That's the historical framework of Chom. There's an anger, there's a fear there. As time goes on, the Greeks enter the scene and they do a fundamental shift in how we look at gods. They're not monotheists. They're still polytheists. Polytheist means many gods, polytheism. But they're not a rock. It's not the sun. It's like a beautified human being. It's like the perfect human being. Yes, they still have vices. Morality wasn't part of this framework yet. But the gods were more ethereal. You didn't sit down and chat to Zeus. You knew Zeus dwelt in Olympus. You can already see a 
a beautifying the crass human being, the crass form of God that the ancient Assyrians and Canaanites had. There's something becoming more beautiful here. It's a stage in human history. You're no longer trying to gain wisdom by becoming more powerful. You're trying to get in touch with the real world. This idea of another world, which you're trying to mimic, that is the, that is the beginning of the philosophy of the Greeks. They called it the forms, specifically Plato. Was trying to make sense of generalizations and categories we make. And he posited a abstract form of particulars. For example, just to give you the Bacchus uh, on Platonic philosophy, he wanted to understand how I see 17 different types of dogs, and I know it's a dog. That's an interesting question. Nobody asked that question. How do I know that's a dog and that's a dog? They look similar. If it, what do I know? I mean, if it was a wolf, I, if it was a, it's a horse, a small horse, I know it's a horse. Questions the Greeks started to ask, lay the foundations to science, to psychology, to give you, to give you another appreciation of this. When, you, um, when we talk um, from either an evolutionary standpoint or a psychological standpoint or a uh, neurological standpoint, what do we separate the brain into? Anybody here do psychology? Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. But what, are the, what, 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 was, what was the Freudian split? The ego, the super ego, and the id. And from a, a you have the uh, the um, the um, prefrontal cortex, you have the amygdala, and you have the whatever it's called. <laughs> Who do you think was the first person to do that three split? It was the Greeks. They did that three split. They called they called it the the, the monster, the lion, and the man. They laid the foundations to so much we're resting on. And this idea of understanding multiplicity in the world, it's one of those things that we, to, to, to appreciate the culture, it also gives us more of a respect for the Jews who fell. The, the Jews in, 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 um, in Judea at that time weren't fighting Greeks, they were fighting each other. Eventually, Greeks came and helped, but then initially it was a civil war. The ones had been Hellenized and the ones had not been Hellenized. And to give an appreciation, A, for the fortitude and the respect for the ones who stood against this. Judah Maccabee, oh, he was a, you can, you can paint him in many different lights, but to, to recognize that he stood against this, it wasn't a stupid pagan, um, let's eat the flesh while we slaughter children to the sun god. There was something genuinely tempting there because there was a truth to it, a benefit, a beauty. If we, we, we shift back to the 19th century where so many Jewish people left Judaism, what was tempting them then? The next stage in human history, the enlightenment, the Haskalah. Pushing it off as a bunch of, I don't know, crazy people. They didn't understand Torah. No, they understood Torah and they were still tempted. Appreciating what was tempting them gives us a respect for the people who stood against it, but also understanding the people who fell. So what did Plato suggest? He said, there's this, this world is a world of multiplicity, but in another world, an ethereal world, the truer world, there is the ultimate form of a dog. And every dog in this world is participating in that form. And when I was a, before I was born, I was in touch with these ultimate forms in my spiritual existence. This sort of language didn't exist. This sort of language of the spiritual, this was the Greeks. We get in touch with this ultimate form. And that's why I know a dog's a dog. I see a thousand dogs, I know it's a dog. But it's, it's, it's taking part in that ultimate dog, in the ether. It sounds a bit bizarre, but it was a hypothesis to make sense of my experience. And the reason I chose this idea of Plato specifically to focus on is because I want to talk about a couple of dangers that fall out of this way of looking at the world. Dangers that we as Jewish people, following the Torah, have to stand against. Yes, there's a benefit, but if you indulge yourself too much in the benefit, grave dangers lay at the bottom. So to recap our, our, our Tuesdays, we opened up with what was tempting. This, was a, this wasn't a clash of baddies versus goodies. This was a clash of ideas. There was something tempting here. And interestingly enough, how do you defeat a bad idea? With a good idea. You couldn't just beat the Greeks. There has to be something about Judaism that still retains us, and there is. We then spoke about what the Greeks gave us. We spoke about that structure of 
He has to dwell in the tents of shame. There is a beauty and a value to Greek, the Greeks, Greek, the Greeks, but it has to dwell in the context of shame. And what do I mean by dwell in the context of shame? There's a very famous statement from Chazal in Ecclesiastes Rabbo, in Echa Rabbo, where it says, if someone says to you, there's wisdom in the nations of the world, believe them. But if they say there's Tyre in the nations of the world, don't believe them. What's the difference between Tyre and wisdom? Not that there isn't going to be an overlap that Tyre is going to offer you wisdom, but what is Tyre fundamentally? Truth, that when we certainly, there's, there's other things that are also true. Spirituality, but if we had to, if I, perhaps we divine could truth. divine truth. This is the sort of language we're talking about when we say Tyre. We don't mean the repository of all wisdom. We mean Hashem gave us the Tyre and putting it in a really simplistic way. Hashem gave us purpose. Hashem gave us a mission. What the Greeks, what Chum are giving the world should be in service of an ultimate goal. So doesn't only Jews have an ultimate goal, non-Jews have a purpose as well. But the point being, the Torah is our purpose. The Torah is our goal. And we think, when, when we say the Torah comes from Hashem, we mean it comes outside from outside the system. That's shame. Once again, connecting you back to that word shame, a name. What is a name? It's that which is outside a person. And pointing to the person and calling them a name. It's as if Hashem looked at the world and gave it a purpose. But the minute you look at the stage of Yavon as being the ends, not that which serves the goal, but that which is the goal, then it becomes very dangerous. So let me point to two, one or two, two or three ideas that fall out of this specific platonic structure, useful and fundamental that it was in the development of human history. But there were aspects of it that were very dangerous from a Jewish standpoint. And also when we say, I was actually I was in Tel Aviv last year and I was giving a similar sort of discussion. And uh, there was a guy in my class who like studied Greek classic. So he was like pointing out that, yes, but that's not what the Greeks held. I said, like, we're talking about a 500 year period here. Obviously we're going to be giving, uh, we, we're going to be picking out ideas here. We're not gonna be giving a systematic structure of every Hellenistic um, school of thought. But one of the most prominent ideas is the idea of the platonic forms. That is something that is with us today to give you an idea of this. When I ask you, um, let me think of a good example of this, um, to ask someone um, to get information, that, that, is from, that, that is using the metaphor of Plato, to get informed, to be informed, this sort of language we're taking from Plato. When you become informed, what does that mean? There was something out there and your mind is taking part in that your mind structures itself about the external idea. These ideas are saturated in our culture. What is a danger that comes along with it? If the ultimate truth, the ultimate world is out there, and this world is a mere shadow of that world, this world is really taking part in an ultimate reality. Meaning there's not, the, the, the dog hasn't got intrinsic worth, it's only the worth that it partakes in this ultimate form. How does that make you look at this world? It distances you from this world. You want to escape this world. You don't want to immerse yourself in this world. The language of escaping this terrestrial existence also comes from the Greeks. The idea of appreciating this world, because where does a Jew live out his life? This world. It's one of the big statements that the Jews, Jewish people made, even against Christianity. Christianity took this idea and they ran with it. And over history, they, they split up with this, this um, within Christianity, you have a very heavy aesthetic tradition of distancing yourself from this world. The ancient world looked at the Jewish people as being crazy. Like, what do you mean? You're, first of all, you're, 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 you, 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 on the one side, consider yourself a spiritual people, but then you eat, you enjoy. That doesn't make sense. The, 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 you either immerse yourself completely in this world or you distance yourself completely from this world. The Jewish people make that balance and that's an idea you're told all the time. But this is a time we have to stand against this. 
the very first budding of an ultimate existence is out there, not down here. Yes, we believe in an afterlife. Yes, we believe that Hashem put us into this world and we believe in the Neshama. Right, but anybody who talks about their desire to escape this world, we would say you're not really understanding Judaism. You don't try and escape this world. You try and live out your tachlis in this world, your purpose in this world. Tachlis and telos, which means purpose. But the idea that this world is fundamental. Imagine, to, to give you, before we take questions, one more playing off of this idea. If this world isn't, the, if this world isn't a world of action that I, I'm, I have my purpose in, then what about people who are not perfect? What do we do with people who aren't perfect? Who are lacking, we have this concept called chesed. Chesed was absent from the Greeks. What do you do with a child that's deformed? It doesn't partake in that ultimate form. It's lacking. It goes to the side. It's not important. If someone's poor, does that mean I have a calling? I have to help the other? No, it just means this supplement. And this didn't bode well for women either, by the way. It, but not because it was particularly sexist. It was, but it was also against men as well. If you didn't own land, you weren't considered a citizen because there was clearly something wrong with you. The, the idea of democracy, once again, a key idea that allowed the development of history and culture, but there's a danger to that as well. The, the Greeks had a very rudimentary form of democracy. Who was considered a citizen? If you were in any way lacking, if you were a barbarian, then obviously not. If you were poor, obviously not. If you were a slave, obviously not. If you were a woman, obviously not. There was no equality in that, the sense of the word that we understand it. If you weren't perfect, or you weren't at least, you didn't appear as complete, well, then you fell by the wayside. That means physically, that means intellectually, that means financially. So this key idea that has a value, but the minute it gets impressed with ends, it becomes very dangerous. So that just the two ideas, once again, yeah, the first idea, it distances you from this world. You remove yourself from this world. Once again, the, the idea of a, a, um, a idea of having value, we're not pushing aside. The Greeks gave a huge amount of value to the world. But if it becomes the ends, it becomes very dangerous. Another manifestation of this is the idea of chesed. The idea of chesed is that I am commanded, I am drawn to because I feel I'm obligated to. What were the Greeks, uh, another idea that plays off this, what were the Greeks also known for? Aesthetics, beauty. Yes, they had an idea of virtue. You're trying to become a virtuous person, but that wasn't about helping other people per se. It was about a symmetry you were trying to embody. You were trying to be the virtuous person. In our shir, where we do the kuzari, Rabbi Yehud HaLevi jumps right on his bandwagon. Rabbi Yehud HaLevi, in his work, the kuzari, which we've been going through over the past couple of weeks, has a discussion with a philosopher. It's basically a, a, a kitsa, it's a, um, in summary form, the, it's a story of a rabbi who has a discussion with a king, and the king converts to Judaism, and it's a debate, it's a dialogue, which, by the way, where do we get dialogues from? Later. Um, the idea that he, it's a discussion, a debate, because you, you get invited into the conversation. But you've got a discussion with a king. And he is systematically laying out Judaism. Where does that idea come from? To systematically lay out a theology. Once again, it comes from the Greeks, but what do you have Yehuda Levi doing? It, a king asks a philosopher to come in, to, to, to display his wares. And what does the philosopher say? I have a god, but he doesn't care about you. I have a God, but it's way too out there to have any interest in you. You can become perfected. You can live out your potential. Another Greek concept. The potential that you are trying to actualize, you can do. You can use any religion or no religion. It's about you. You connecting. Not about others. Not about drawing others in. Not about helping the other. It's once again, it's like a, a beautiful form of narcissism. Which, by the way, where's the word narcissism come from? Sorry? Yes, exactly. Narcissist. And that's, by the way, in Chazal, you have a similar sort of story about a, which has a beautiful message at the end of it. It's basically a, um, a person who was working for himself and became a Nazir. He saw himself in, in the mirror and found himself so beautiful. And to avoid sinning, he became a Nazir. 
uh, the Greek parallel is like he died because he was like so attracted to himself. That's where we get the word narcissist. So they get the, the narcissist was basically very beautiful and loved himself so much. And he saw himself in the river and he was overcome by the desire to love himself and he jumped over and he died. Hence we call people who are self-obsessed narcissists. That was the Greek way of looking at the world. If it was the goal, if it was the ends, it just becomes a bizarre form of spiritual narcissism. And we can see this emerge in our own lives. When I talk about, and this doesn't really, I don't know if this happens in seminaries, but I, I have conversations where I hear people speak in this, I call this, this, this like weird platonic Greek way of slapping on yeshivishness to it. Who's going to be the best habrus for me? So I'll ditch him. Yeah, I'm going to get a new roommate because, and this guy's like chatting away about how he can, is there a truth that a person has to look after themselves? Absolutely. But anytime it's taken to an extreme, it's like, it becomes like a spiritual narcissist. He has to build his, I would speak to them, say, well, I have to, I have to prepare my olam haba. Yeah. What do you mean you have to prepare your olam haba? Well, this amount of mitzvahs gives me this amount of reward in the next world. This, like, so you're basically a pig, just a very spiritual one. Like, that's something really weird about that. But we have to, the Torah is telling us to embed ourselves in this world, but hold the next world there as well. The next world isn't absent from Jewish theology. We have roots of this in the Torah. We have roots of there is a place we are going, but we're constantly focusing on this world. One of the answers about why the next world is not mentioned explicitly in the Torah is because it's not the point. It's there, but it's not the point. They, they say one of the reasons why it became more emphasized in Jewish thought is was because of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages, with the, all the suffering we experienced as a people, it was very difficult to focus on this world. So a truth that was embedded within Judaism became overemphasized. But the call is this world. You're living out your purpose in this world because when you're dead, you can't do anything. Not you're dead. A person is dead. They can't do anything. That's why we have this idea when a person dies, we do things in memory of them because we're trying to connect what they did in this world and, and continue it on. So we have our three things. We have the, we have, we, we, we used an example as the, uh, the idea of Plato and the idea of the forms. And this idea of the forms has a, 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 a key, a, a foundation in Western thought and Western culture and Western science. But the, looking at it as the ends, or using this philosophical system as your ends, you distance yourself from this world. You distance yourself from the suffering of others. And you can become really self-obsessed in a very spiritual way. So, any questions on these ideas? It's a bit, bit much, yes, 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 you. Um, I just wanted to go back, you know you said that, that what threatened the Greeks was that, that Jews managed it to have value in this world and in a spiritual world. Are you referring to like in Greek culture or like either hedonism or glory? Is that like what, meaning obviously like they lived in this world and still managed to enjoy themselves otherwise what's the point? But what is, what's the other element? What's their spirit, what's the spiritual element that they should? So when it comes to, so uh, the, the point of a discussion like this is that, um, I'm, I'm gonna ask you, but just repeat the question. What, what is the, what is the, um, uh, what their physical, which would be, as you said, hedonism yeah. and their spiritual, what was that? Where were they, where were yeah. they? So, the, the point of it, the way I, so to, to, to perhaps give a, a brief answer is that, yes, you've got hedonism, which is the obsession with this world for joy and happiness. But by the way, it's also important to point out uh, hedonism, as we understand it today, we think about a person eating cake all day. They didn't do that. Epicurus, which was known as a hedonist, lived a very spiritual life, but it was about friendship and it was about um, um, communions and they were very egalitarian in these things. They, they didn't look at it as just base pleasure. It wasn't about that. But the point I'm focusing on here is that if you have a, a system that looks at the, like a, this world as being a illusion or this world being not real, you distance yourself from this world because you have this system where you look at the ultimate reality as taking place somewhere else. So of course you live in this world, but if things are ugly, if things aren't right, they get pushed aside. That's what I mean by the obsession with the next, I don't call it the next world because that sounds like Olam Abba, I don't mean the next world. I mean, a ultimate reality that this is just a mere shadow of. 
Is that how they live, like with, with an obsession of the afterlife? <coughs> not afterlife as we understand afterlife. That's why it's also right, the next that, world. That's why I'm, how so, did they? How did they envision? They lived there. The, uh, uh, the uh, next. Uh, well, first of all, remember we're talking about a huge pan of history here, yeah. which means we're talking all the way from the idea of uh, the, the, the philosophical systems, but also the uh, the the Hellenic um, pantheon of the gods. It, it, it's I'm doing it's ironic. I'm doing a bit of a broad generalization here. The purpose of this broad generalization is for us to be able to take a message of a benefit but a danger. They would live their life like you and me would, but the the danger of this philosophical system that stands at the root of how you look at the world is that you look at the beautiful as being what you should be pursued. Beautiful both in terms of aesthetics but also in terms of ideas. So the way this brought itself out was that. Um, an example, a child who's not perfect just got killed. A person who wasn't perfect just was ignored because or they used. Wanted to reach the, what I'm trying to understand is what was their vision of spirituality? Ah, sorry. That so, was, so that's yeah. a longer conversation. We went through it in the um, the discussion because we, but very basically, at least within this school of thought, is you were trying to connect to the ultimate reality. The form. Like, exactly. Like, exactly. You want to reach a perfect form. Correct. Correct. That means by getting in touch mentally or intellectually that you would become perfected. It's, it's difficult because with the way we understand the next world is very different than they made it. We look at it connecting to Hashem and there being a, an aspect of how we lived out this life that well, we, we, we could get sidetracked. But it's not the same sort of next world like you get rewarded per se. It's more about intellect and perfection. Correct, correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, okay, so going back to like the concept of uh, spiritual mysticism, um, so I was actually recently having a conversation with a friend about like altruism doesn't exist, and I'm on the side that it does exist. So that, at least in Judaism, the like, Torah expects you to like like reach a point where you're not doing it for your own family, you're doing it for God. Yeah, so you, do you think that altruism does exist? In does altruism exist? <laughs> so, so yeah, so it's, it's a good question, and it would become relevant here, obviously. Um, so maybe if there's time at the end, I'll, we'll, we'll touch upon it because it's a great question. Um, but it will get if we've got a couple of minutes at the end, then we'll definitely we'll jump on the idea of uh, altruism because it's, it's a useful term as well, a useful idea. Yes. So, so I'm not. Uh, there's there's it, it, it's tricky because I'm not. Uh, there's obviously going to be overlap. There's, there's aspects of Torah that we would call consider wisdom, yeah. but when I, when when Chazal described there being wisdom in the nations of the world, perhaps let, let's look at it as utility, things that can live your life and make you allow you to live a better life. What you can use in service to your goal, yes, in the service to your goal. Even by the way, spiritual systems. I don't mean only a lever. So I don't mean like only base crass things about how like drive a car I can they can even be spiritual systems that can help you in your avoid Hashem meditation for example that is not a Jewish thing I love yet people try and like pinpoint into the Rambam that's it's it's not there you can make it there with a lot of work but it's not there but also when we say meditation I'm not talking about the Greeks necessarily even though they, you're right they did have meditative practices People take part in them today as well. But you're right. First of all, that's a good point. I haven't actually considered that. But in general, when we say meditation, we're really talking about um, Buddhist traditions and in the mm -hmm. East. But that is, can be profoundly beneficial in your avoid Hashem. What does that mean? It means taking a mindfulness practice. Now, yes, I would advise, be careful which mindfulness practice you take. You take a Buddhist one, then yeah, okay, fine. You're mixing. And when I say the word Torah here, I mean the word Torah in terms of goal. If you take a Buddhist meditative retreat, you're now mixing the goal of Torah into the Buddhist goal. Perhaps that wouldn't necessarily be the, the best way of doing it. Perhaps taking an atheistic meditative course would be really helpful. I mean, not because they're, not, they're preaching atheism. I'm saying if they're telling you like how to meditate. When you say a bracha, how would mindfulness, a secular wisdom, you, you hold the apple. When I ate an apple yesterday, the day before it was, I didn't look at the apple, I didn't appreciate the apple. I said a bracha and I ate the apple. <laughs> that's not necessarily a good thing that's my that's the numbing of my ability to be surprised and you hold an apple I, I, I can't do it that beautifully but if you hold an apple you can appreciate an apple on a fundamentally different level if you engage the reason I'm into this right now is because when Rift went through um, birthing she did a mindfulness uh, birthing thingy whatever. she said it was amazing <laughs> we actually uh, uh, anecdotal but we because apparently that giving birth is painful and uh, one of the things how do you practice pain 
Mindfulness, once again, is focusing in on something, being present. How do you, how do, you do that with pain? Now, I've never given birth, and but Rifkin wants to practice. So you know what we did? We held onto ice. Oh, wow. So I did it as well. Uh, we, so we basically you hold onto ice, and you, you sit with it. You should try it. <laughs> and, you, and you get to experience it, and you, want to, you, and you have to do it for a certain amount of time, and you want to let go. But you can't because you've got a certain amount of time. So you start experiencing the pain, like moving around the pain, focusing on the pain, but moving. It's it's really now that's not Jewish, but it's unbelievably powerful. Now, when I say not Jewish, I don't mean it doesn't come from our Kodesh Baruch. I believe the Almighty is the author of existence. But the appreciation of balance is so key here. But let's let's we we just spoke about the Greek system, like uh, once again with broad generalizations. Oh, by the way. The ideas I'm articulating here come from two thinkers specifically. Probably should put that on the table first. Um, Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, and in a more modern context, from Aaron Lichtenstein, or in a contemporary sense, with Moise Tarnow. And I sort of melded them together to make some sort of like uh, hodgepodge. But the idea being that if we take um, the uh, Buddhist tradition, you can envision the Tyra of Buddhism, and you can envision the wisdom of Buddhism. The wisdom of Buddhism would be the meditative practices. The Tyra of Buddhism would be Nuksha, Nirvana, escaping self. Now, a person says, I'm doing a Buddhist, a Buddhist retreat. I'm like, what did you take from it? But I had to escape this world. I have to achieve Nirvana. I'm like, sorry, mate. That's that. Now you're getting Tyra involved. When I say Tyra, I mean purpose. My purpose comes from the Tyra. Not, can you take aspects of Buddhism? In way we can take aspects of Greek philosophy. The whole tradition of the Rishonim was systemizing Jewish thought. That idea of systematic structuring, they, 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 weren't, they didn't deny they were taking it from Greeks, but it was they, they used it. It didn't become their goal. Yes? Um, and there's kind of a difference between like, I just want to understand
in a similar effective way without these blue Great questions. question, great question. So maybe I'll play it like this. When we speak about history, it's not random. I'm committed to the existence of Hashem in this world as an active agent. History isn't random. Thereby, the trends of history are part of the story. The basis for this was the idea of Noach. I think history is taking a path, which means why certain things emerged at a certain time, there was a purpose to it. For example, Christianity. Is Christianity a good thing or a bad thing? Hmm? <laughs> Who has, can the Jews go and bring monotheism to the Mayans? No, no, we can't. Can the Christians? If you look at Hanukkah as being, from once again, being able to look at it from a, a broad standpoint, Hanukkah is part of the history of monotheism. Bear, Zeus, deism. What I mean by that is God being the Nile and a man to the pantheon of the gods, to later on in Greek philosophy, God being the prime mover, to Christianity adopting that as a monotheistic religion, Islam as a monotheistic religion to the world. The world is becoming progressively more Jewish. Is that part of the story? Perhaps at different stages in history where Hashem gave, where, does, where do ideas come from? I don't think, once again, we also have to remember, I don't think ideas are random. Hashem gives people ideas. We don't believe when I, you know, when I, um, when you have an idea, it pops into your head. We believe that Hashem is part of history. If Hashem is part of history, then history is on a track, which means why certain ideas and certain philosophies emerge at different stages in history might be part of the divine plan. Maybe we needed mindfulness now. I don't know. Yeah. Um, can you just add to that, that feeling those things are added to give us a better understanding of Torah? Because like, if you like, meditate, like the Torah is supposed to be a, a living, breathing like document that we like, interact with differently personally at every stage of our life. And then also like through our history, like it means like we we see different things in it through like pre-Holocaust, post-Holocaust. Yeah. You know, like we just interact with the government differently. So it's like it, part of it is like the fact that we do live in a world with different nations and different wisdoms. And like hopefully like they're gonna bring different wisdoms and we can take whatever this new age and like try to look into the Torah and see like can we interact with Interesting. the Torah for sure, for sure, for sure. We, get, we gain different lenses and we see things in different lights. Exactly. For sure. Any other thoughts? Any other questions? Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about like how this is random. I'm just thinking about how it's like very appropriate. I feel like there was a huge reduction in technology in like the last world. And I feel like over time, I was able to bring technology and be like, hey, look, you can make technology holy by running for like Interesting, interesting. Um, but my main question is, so how does the Egyptian culture, which has its idea of first afterlife, parallel with the um... So the, the, the Egyptian idea of the afterlife is also, it's a very physical thing. The idea of an afterlife, I think has been, but the idea of an afterlife has been, I think everybody, it's, there, was, there was no one who didn't think there was something when you died, but they would bury people with their wives and their slaves and their, and their gold. And all, it was a very, physical crust. That doesn't mean the Jews nicked it from them or they nicked it from the Jews. It, it, it could be there because it's true. Meaning also, once again, we, we believe that the, the, the story of um, Shem Chomniopis came really early. These ideas or Jewish ideas um, hopefully permeated throughout the world. But um, the, the, so you could look at the, uh, they, they have, it's actually interesting, the, um, you see the parallels between Egypt and this is like a, a good ending point. We spoke about the Greeks and how that, that could be useful and that could be dangerous. But also, by the way, the Egyptian world, where did Hashem take us out from? Egypt. And the Egypt is like the, 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 the absolute ultimate description of that Bronze Age world, of, the, of, 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 of that embedded world. After the Jews left Egypt, and you then start to have throughout history what they call the Axial Age, which is the split between from the Greek, the Greeks come to the scene, and the Jewish people come to the scene. These are two, which what they say today, we are living on the world of Jerusalem and Athens. Why those two worlds? They both gave something to world, this is from a secular standpoint, they both gave something to world history in the West that we experience today. Um, 
But uh, just, to, just, to, just to end off, just for the value of this, we, we spoke about Hanukkah. And what was the opening and the worthy point of Hanukkah that I think is worth putting on the map to begin with? Is that we have to have a gratitude, but be on guard. Gratitude is important. Without gratitude, you, you, all the dangers I mentioned before of educational values and of um, um, living in the world, it, not being true to your environment, there's a danger there. But there's also a danger to immersing yourself completely into the, the, the secular tyrant, let's call it. We need to have balance. When we're children, we don't need balance. We need simple stories. We need to hear about the Yerbanisha books and how they, they, they just hated truth. And they just hated goodness. And that's why they didn't like the Diyan. Because we were good and we were true and they were evil. We need, when we were kids, we need that. But when we get older, we need to hear balance. Because if we don't have balance in our Torah, we, 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 we live bifurcated lives. And that's not healthy. And also it means we don't appreciate what the world is giving us. Yeah, you, you had a question? Um, I'm just going to like, 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 the, 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 um, the, the, the three stages that we developed. We spoke about the Bronze Age and the, uh, the, the Jewish world that, 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 that emerged from that in history with Christianity and Islam. But you've got this like, and actually, by the way, you can see different cultures emphasizing one part over the other. If you look at Chom as being the heat and the passion, and you look at um, Yefes being the beautiful and the culture, and shame being the spiritual, you can see that playing itself out throughout the cultures as a bit of an archetype. If you think of Isis, a bit random, but think of Isis, very spiritual. Very spiritual. Isis, very spiritual. But they've got, if you, if you looked at, yeah, 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 the terrorist group, very spiritual people. Yeah, but they've got the spirit and they've got the Chom. You take, fascism the nazis they had the yefes and they had the heart you can look at it, history playing itself out these three archetypes the idea is to have a balance you need the passion you need the spirit you need the culture and that is what makes a full human being but there is a hierarchy what starts at the bottom works its way up the idea of trying to become holistic in the way we approach the time um and that's why it's important to have and, and i know you have good teachers here because um I've met them. Um, so, so well, yes, but uh, <laughs> so you, you could look at the Nazis of having culture and having the, the heat, Chom and Yefes, but no shame. So, obviously, we're not talking about extremes here. A person can point to spiritual ideas when Nazism. Obviously, for the purposes of ideas and talking about things, we've got to do certain generalizations. But the, you can look throughout history at different cultures of emphasizing one over another. Um, but ISIS had to, ha, did have the spirituality. But they, yeah. Alcohol. But too much. Exactly. You could, it, this is a suggestion made by a friend of mine, Shmuley Phillips. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to get in trouble in a bit. Yaf Elokim the Yafes. Beautiful is Yafes. The Yishkaim, and should he dwell in the tents of shame? 